Welcome to Habitual Excellence, presented by Value Capture. This podcast in our firm is all about helping you and your organization achieve habitual excellence via one unifying focus, one value-based structure, and one performance system. In other words, it's about helping you capture dramatically more value through achieving perfect care and perfect safety for patients and staff. To learn more about Value Capture and our services, visit www.valuecapturellc.com. Hi, this is Mark Raven. Welcome to episode 65 of Habitual Excellence. Today is part two of the discussion that we started last week in episode 64 with Teresa Brown, author of books including her most recent, Healing. Um, So I hope you enjoyed part one of the episode. Here is, again, Teresa Brown, part two. And and the case you reference, uh, Redonda Vaught uh, is is the name of of the nurse. And um, I wasn't there. I'm not an expert on the case. But from my reading of it, I mean, I've, I've seen commentary, a lot of discussion online, even in nurse forums. Some nurses say, well, if you just read the label on the medication, like there's this hard line that says, um, you know, uh, it was egregious. Um, But then, you know, you you raise different levels of um, punishment, losing your job, losing your license. Then there's the whole prosecution and conviction layer. And like reading what happened there, I mean, it seemed like there were many, many systemic factors. She was working in a, she was um, helping out by working in an area she was unfamiliar with. Um, I think it was in, uh, I believe, uh, radiology, and it was somewhat unusual to have to sedate a patient Mm -hmm. for that. Um, There were time pressures from the doctor and others, and then there was this culture of just kind of ignoring the need for overrides and the factor, like you said, about the couple of letters. Like There could have been there were maybe there were cultural factors that could have been better error proofing in place to not set her up to fail. And, and I'm, I'm not a lawyer, but it seems like there's often like, you know, kind of mitigate uh, relative legal liability where right. I don't think anyone is saying she's blameless, but right. it seems like the system and society is punishing her. And I don't know where, where, where the, um, where the hospital is, uh, and it seems like they're they're blaming the nurse when the, it begs questions of. So, what are you doing to prevent this from happening again? Right, right, and two right two points that you brought up. One again, there's that very hardline culture. You know, it's clearly marked as a paralytic. Um, her mistake. I would never make that mistake. No one, no one except someone who's really stupid and doesn't care would make that mistake. Um, and that's it. Mm-hmm. And there is that strain in nursing. I know that. And it's, pr- it's probably there among physicians also. Um, and it's just, it's so problematic. And, and like you just said, we can admit this was a very, very serious error. Um, and she, knows that like she never denied that she reported it and that's the uh, the other issue and that actually i just got my um my uh covid booster last night and the pharmacist was talking to me about this just totally off the cuff about we do not want a system that encourages people to lie and hide things right 
And it sounds like um, from, from my reading of the reports and everything that happened there that this error could have been covered up. And I'm yes. not saying people should cover it up, but I think that fear factor now will prevent people from speaking up in ways that would prevent future errors. And that's why I think, you know, this, this, this transparency and this focus on um, learning and improvement more so than retribution and punishment is something people talk about in the patient safety movement. A lot of groups, the Institute for Safe uh, Medication Practices and the Institute for Healthcare Improvement and, 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 and some leading voices in the healthcare quality movement have spoken up very loudly about how this conviction is a big setback for future patient safety. Yeah, definitely. Because if you think, wow, if I make a mistake and I report this, okay, it's one thing to lose your job, to lose your license, to go to jail. Right. And I read the DA said, well, it, that the DA went out of his way to say, this is not about nurses. This is about this nurse, but also said, it's like she was driving drunk. And I thought, it's absolutely not like she was driving drunk. She was at work. <laughs> like, I mean, if she was drunk at work, okay, that's different. But she was working. She made a mistake, a very bad mistake within an incredibly chaotic system. And to get back to you saying, if she could have said, I have a concern, this looks very different from when I've given this drug before, I have to reconstitute it. It says, you know, but it, it, it is very familiar to feel like, even though everyone says, Oh, you know, ask, if you have a question, ask, but then <laughs> it can be, you don't know that. Like what, what are you thinking? Um, sure. The, the, the shaming that comes from speaking up and you, you, you write a lot, Teresa, about um, maybe the word pride applies. Um, you, 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 you wrote in healing how it wasn't easy to write about a mistake that you disclosed, you wrote about in your book, The Shift, um, giving an injection of, of a steroid. Can, can, can you tell that story briefly and like some of the uh, your reflection on why it was difficult to even put that into writing? Yeah. So very quickly that I was working outpatient oncology at that point, And someone had been ordered, I'll just make this up. Let's say 45 milligrams of, let's say 60 milligrams of dexamethasone. And cause I don't remember the exact details and it comes in 20 milligram vials. So I went and pulled up three 20 milligram vials into a syringe and, uh, gave it slowly to the patient. And, and I think you said it was like three times what the normal injection yes. might be. Yes. It might normally be a vial. Right? right. Yes. And so I thought this is really weird. I've never done this before, but um, we were working with a bunch of different doctors and, you know, that's the other thing with the problem of lack of standardization. So you, you just kind of felt like, well, this is weird, but we do a lot of weird. So, um, and then I was looking at the order which I think had been faxed in and written over on the side, very, very pale was to put the dexamethasone in a small bag and run it over 15 minutes. So I literally, when I saw that, 
literally wanted the ground to open up and swallow me. I felt so terrible um, and told the supervisor and she said, go call the doctor. And the doctor was fabulous. Like he said, oh, yeah, I don't think that's going to, you know, it might cause her pressure to drop. So monitor that. Yeah, it's fine. Um, very reassuring, just really wonderful because I felt so, so bad. And I, I, that's the other problem in nursing. At least there's this culture of you can never make a mistake. And the reality is we're human. We're going to make mistakes. Um, and so then you need to create a system that makes mistakes a lot less likely. Exactly. So like I say, why can't we have a standardized order form? Why does every doctor use their own form? Right. Of- well, and why are we relying? I mean, it, it seems like such a, a vivid illustration of a system problem, that faint handwriting, which might not have looked faint originally, but however right. it came through the facts didn't come through well. And like you said, if, if it's not a standardized form in some way, I would make the case you weren't set up for success there. Yes. And, and that gets me to another thought I I often had as a nurse that healthcare is still such an oral culture. Um, And it's as if we haven't adapted to the complexity of so many more drugs than they had 50 years ago, you know, so many more technologies. And as a patient, I really felt that I, I I didn't understand why can't they just give me a piece of paper that says, here's an algorithm of what might happen. Here's the order we would like things to go in for you. And then on the other side could be a list of physicians, right? Um, I mean, they gave me the names of some surgeons. And again, I asked my friend for a recommendation, very, you know, the rare person, right? Who has a breast surgeon, who's a good friend. Um, but the lack of anything in writing, like we know that people go into appointments and they don't hear what is said well. Um, and my husband would come with me. So between the two of us, you know, it was like, we would have one brain because he, he had his own feelings about his wife having breast cancer. And I felt like every time I should leave with a piece of paper, that tells me something. <laughs> I, I mean, I've heard patients who want to record those visits and sometimes doctors don't want them doing that. It's right. for their own reference. So I could go back when I'm maybe uh, in a different state of mind or clear headed to go back and make sure I heard it correctly. Cause even notes could be incomplete or inaccurate. Right. And uh, yeah, it's, that is really, really a puzzle to me or or why there isn't, I mean, every hospital could do it or we could have a national database, but of course then everybody would argue about what goes in it, but sort of, you know, here's the, here's the 10 minute video you can watch about having breast cancer. Um, And there was a video they made about exercises to do after lumpectomy, which, which I did, but you know, that there's, there's at like, where's the breast cancer app, you know, that you yeah. can. <laughs> I mean, I think there are online communities. I have friends who have been cancer patients where they really rely 
on kind of a peer group network of other patients. Um, there's a society for empowered patients. I forget the, I, I think I have the okay. name slightly wrong, but, but people are trying to fill in those gaps in different ways. Yeah. And I, and that's where I found help with tamoxifen. I, I, as I talk about in the book, I, I made a decision to try and not spend a lot of time online because I'd seen so many patients and family members look online and end up being terrified by what they saw there. But I did find some chat groups talking about tamoxifen and how hard it was to be on it. And that made me feel a lot less alone. That was very helpful. Mm -hmm. Um, One other thing I wanted to ask you about, and this is something you wrote about in uh, the shift. um, And you did use the phrase too proud. You wrote about being uh, too proud to speak up, to share a concern with a manager that a shift's assignment was, as you called it, potentially overwhelming. Um, curious to hear, you know, your your thoughts on that. And then, and then there's kind of a follow up question when it comes to to nurses being overburdened and nurse patient ratios. Um, your your thoughts about different efforts to sort of try to mandate limits on patient nurse ratios. Yeah. Again, the, the question you asked is right. Another one of these situations where whatever gets thrown at you, you're supposed to be able to take it, and to say this is just this is too much. You know, why why am I the person who has five patients, or you know, why do I have the person who needs chemo every two hours? I mean, one day at work, I had we had a protocol that basically was chemo almost every two hours. It's one of the pre-transplant protocols where we're sort of just wiping out their immune system. And I had two patients on that protocol that day. Um, right. But there's this feeling of, and it's probably my personality, probably the culture of, I don't want to be that person who's quote unquote whining. This is too much for me. I can't do this. You know, instead of, (laughs) instead of like an adult saying, this is not a safe, apportionment of patients, um, which, yeah, that's a problem. Um, but I, I do agree with staffing ratios because unfortunately it seems like that's the only way to get enough nurses on staff. And I've said this so many times, and I'm sure the people listening to this podcast most of them are aware of this issue, but because nurses don't bring in income, we're seen as an area of labor costs only. And so, oh, we want to cut labor costs. Let's cut nurses. I'm sure it's never quite that cut and dried, but that's how it feels when you're working on the floor. And uh, then there are these situations where you're always working a little bit harder than you should be. You have too much to do than you can really get done. And it's, it's not a question of laziness or not wanting to work hard. It's about not being able to give patients the attention they absolutely need. And, you know, I worked with very sick patients who were often getting blood transfusions, who were getting chemotherapy, who were getting experimental drugs um, who are at risk of uh, systemic side effects, um, you know, neurological 
problems that would onset because of some of the infections that could come with the stem cell transplant. They were on immune suppression. You know, they were really, really complicated patients. And a nurse needs to have time to have eyes on those patients, as we call it. So I wish I didn't feel like ratios were necessary, but it seems like nothing else is maybe going to make that happen. And and the one thing I wish people would think about also is there is data coming out now that shows the cost of not having enough nurses. So, um, you know, urinary tract infections go up, falls go up. I'm imagining that um, civil suits sometimes go up or malpractice suits um, go up, but I feel like the people who deal with that pot of money don't talk to the people who are looking at the labor pot of money. And I really would like for those two people to talk to each other and that, you know, there could be a sense of we're investing in the overall good environment for our patients. Um, I just read this book called, oh, it's right here. Patients come second. Oh, yes. I've interviewed uh, Paul is it Spiegelman. Spiegelman he's one of, yeah. He's yeah. one of the he's, authors. Yeah. 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 I've interviewed um, him. And wrote about it for the American Journal of Nursing um, about invest in your staff and you're going to get good results, which just makes sense to me from an experiential perspective. I wish they had had more data in this book about money. <laughs> Um, but the argument is great and it, it makes sense to me. And now this, all these issues are so important because we're coming off COVID. A lot of nurses have quit. Nurses have left regular jobs to become travel nurses. So we have ended up with this healthcare environment that is fragmented, even if it's well-staffed and maybe well-staffed by people who have no loyalty to that particular institution, which I don't mean they're disloyal. I just mean they don't know who the people are. They're not there for the long haul. You know, they're there to show up, do their job and then leave. And they may be fantastic at doing their job, but this whole relational piece is going to be missing. Yeah. And I, and you need that. Yeah. Well, I, I could see where uh, if, if the nurses aren't feeling, um, properly uh, taken care of, for lack of a better word, properly supported in, in their work environment in different ways. The temptation would be to say, well, if it's, if it's going to be lousy, I might as well get paid more to put up with lousy. And that's, that's unfortunate um, that it even gets to that. You, you, know, you talk about staffing levels. You also write you know, a lot in the shift about like on your theme of just you're supposed to just take it like nurses not getting breaks or time to eat that has a direct impact on fatigue and errors and the health of staff members. That sounds like a systemic issue. Um, you, you write about some of the trade-offs of like, you know, the 12 hour shifts are shown to increase the risk of errors because of fatigue, but then say people will say, well, but now we get better continuity of care. Like, well, do you want, like, how, how can we have both? Can we improve the shift handoff process in a way that reduces fatigue without creating other problems. Um, I threw a lot at you there, but I'm just curious your thoughts around 
the, the issues of fatigue from shift length and breaks and lunches, what can or should we do about that? Those are such great questions. And I'm thinking we, we would often say on the job, you know, I wish I wish I could get a break where I could leave. Why, you know, I need to get something from the drugstore. And there was one that was about a seven minute walk away. I wish on my lunch break, I could walk to the drugstore, pick up what I need and come back. But you can't because who's going to take your phone? Um, and it's... I think it's really hard for people to understand what it, it almost feels like being a servant in a way that, you know, you, you can't leave the hospital because there's no one to take your phone for you. And your phone is your connection to everything that's going on with your patients. And there are hospitals where they have lunch nurses come in. Um, and, and then there are, cause I know when I went to MD Anderson a few years ago to give a talk, they said then the problem they had was nurses saying, well, I can't leave my patients. You know, this sort of no one can take care of my patients as well as I can. Like, yeah, for half an hour, someone else can take care of your patients. Um, so it can become a kind of, again, that sort of, I would call it a maladaptation to the work environment is no one can do this as well as I can. So that is definitely a problem, you know, that walking across the street to go to Starbucks felt like a huge treat because you actually got to get outside and breathe some, some fresh air and, and just leave that environment. And everyone needs breaks. Wait, there was another really important thing you asked me. Can you remind me what the... Um, so talking about uh, the 12-hour shifts and the dynamic yes. of fatigue versus handoffs. Yes. Shifts. So this was fascinating to me. When the shift came out, I did a whole bunch of interviews similar to this one. Um, and these were just interviews by all kinds of people, right? Like mostly radio people, um, not healthcare people, the point being. And to a person pretty much they all asked me about 12 hour shifts and they didn't ask me like, huh? They asked me like, isn't that a really bad idea? Um, and it stunned me because I thought in a good way though, because I had no idea the public thought about that or cared about that. Um, and I would say, yeah, you're right. There's clear evidence that after 10 hours, errors go up. Um, and it was clear that people would feel better if nurses did not work 12 hour shifts. So yes, you, you get to the sticking point though, which is I, and I've said this, if I have my patients for 12 hours, I don't have to worry that any balls are going to get dropped. You know, again, it's that kind of, I'm looking out for them and um, you know, which, which we are, but yes, couldn't we do, handoffs better? Couldn't we have an electronic record system that was actually helpful uh, rather than just being sort of a mass of data that seems like it does, you know, nothing for the people actually using it? I mean, just, just imagine if you actually really had a task list that was real tasks that you had to get done. And, and I would just add to that during the day. So the person coming to take over for me would have that. It would just already be there. You know, these are the really important things you're going to need to think about. Um, Cause we, we do handoffs, but 
to think if it could be built into the electronic record would be one. I mean, that's a whole nother piece, like why we have these (laughs) electronic health records that don't do anything for the actual clinicians. Um, But yeah, it's, it's interesting too, when, when interns had their hours restricted, there was a lot of complaining, right? That, well, we're not, we're not getting that continuity of care. And then it turned, when you, people start talking about it, it turns out that their handoffs are terrible, that they were so bad at handoffs. And, you know, I said, so improve the handoff. That's fixable. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Right. But, and that gets to another problem of, yeah, but we've always done it this way. And we're also seeing these really smart, educated people. Right. And this is, I I love telling this story Um, on the bone marrow transplant unit. We had one of the drug rooms where the Pixis was, and there was the Pixis and then a refrigerator and the refrigerator door opened out. So if someone was getting medications out of the refrigerator, nobody else could use the Pixis, right? It's not, not well done. And I was in there one day and one of the facilities people was in there and he said, you know what? I can move that door. So it would open the other way. And I, and I was in a hurry and I said, you know what, when I first started working here, I would have really cared about that. Now I don't even Hmm. think about it. Get used to it. Yeah. And it's like, I'd gotten conditioned to think of everything being harder than it needs to be. Yeah. And, and, and so that point, before we wrap up, I wanted to ask you, there's, there's overwork, um, there's fatigue. And then unfortunately there's burnout. Um, you, you said in, in the shift, this is another thing I highlighted here. One of the key factors in burnout is employees feeling like they have very little control over their work environment. That's pretty much status quo in hospitals for nurses and doctors. That's one thing at Valley Capture, we really try to help change that culture where it's not even feeling like it's actually having control over elements of the work environment. Um, and, I'm, and it's sad to hear you, you know, to, to, to see you write. I, I probably wouldn't disagree with it from my observations of, of that being the status quo, of um, having little control over the work environment, of just fighting through things, working around, tolerating, getting used to instead of improving. Um, it's a big, heavy question, but have you, have you seen or do you have thoughts on, on how we can start shifting some control of that environment to the caregivers? Yeah, that is a great question. And for me, and I've written about this, uh, and I know this is a, you know, multi-million dollar problem, but how the, the electronic health records we use now are mostly set up for billing um, they take a huge amount of time. Things are always being added on to them. So we have to do more. And I found that just enormous in terms of taking me away from the bedside, this incredible amount of pressure I felt to get the charting done every day. And then it's not useful to me. Like so much of the information was not useful, which gets back to, you know, why well, want to go in for a mammogram? Do I have to write down all that information? Well, because they can't print it out easily in a way that's useful. So why do we have record systems like that? I know the answer to that question. Um, <laughs> so that's, 
one thing um, because it just eats up a huge amount of time. And then it's this weird thing where we get judged on our charting. You know, in nursing school, you're taught if it isn't charted, it isn't done. And the presumption is if it's not charted, you didn't do it. There's never a presumption that, well, you just didn't get it charted. Um, And I, for whatever reason, found that just incredibly difficult. I know I'm not alone in that though. That's a pretty common feeling. And, and the other thing would be, yeah, to, to get rid of that toxic culture. That's so suspicious of people saying I have a concern or I'm not really sure how I'm supposed to handle this patient. I mean, this, this did happen to me once someone getting continuous bladder irrigation and on the floor, four patients was standard. And then we were getting an admission of family that was notoriously difficult to handle. Um, and my manager gave me that couple. And so here I'm, I've got someone continuous bladder irrigation means they have to constantly be getting fluid going through their bladder and you can't let it run dry. And then all of a sudden I'm getting an admission of a family that when they show up, the wife wants this and 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 this. And my manager knew that. And I didn't feel like I can say how exactly am I supposed to be doing continuous bladder irrigation when Mrs. X is going to want me to be in their room for an hour when they first get here. Um, So instead of having a sense of assignments or sort of punishments or challenges, there just needs to be so much more of a sense of what is good care. And for me, that really comes down to professionalism and you know the the uh, letting people be nasty to each other, uh, you know, criticizing someone because they called a code and maybe they shouldn't have. Um, all this you can call it all different things, but to me, it's a lack of professionalism. And if someone says I have a concern, the first response should be I have to listen to that. Um, so. Those are two things I can think of right off the top of my head. And if there was more help available, um, I mean, in nursing, it drove me nuts to have the charge nurse be someone who would just walk around with a clipboard, would never help. Um, And it was, I gave a talk at Intermountain. Actually, they, they have a book club and they read the shift. They had me come out to talk about the shift. And, and I was talking about how you have some charge nurses, like some charge nurses will take every admission and get that person settled. And then they, they hand them off to a nurse. Um, and some walk around with a clipboard and they don't do anything. I don't know what they're doing with that clipboard. Um, and they said at Intermountain that they had just standardized the role of the charge nurse. And there were people who said they didn't want to do it anymore. Mm, well, there's something else they could do maybe then. Because if, if they're not supporting the nurses in, in, in the patient care, I mean, yeah, sometimes redefining that leadership role means other people are going to select out or select in. Maybe that's for the best. Yeah, no, I agree with you. It's, I mean, and as a new nurse, our, we had a nurse practitioner who was supposed to help on the floor and she would say, well, if you're feeling stuck, ask the clinicians. 
And it was the clinicians who were the worst bullies. That was my first job. And I remember once going to one, you know, this is not going to work because of this person, but this is what I was told to do. So I'm going to do it and said, can you help me with this? And she just looked at me like I was an idiot and said, no. So to feel like, ah, I feel like I'm drowning. Could someone come help me? Well, the water's still here instead of, you know, here. Um, that would, that would be huge. Well, so as, as we wrap up, Teresa, and thank you for, for spending so much time with me here today. Uh, again, our guest has been Teresa Brown, author of uh, books, including uh, The Shift. Again, that was a New York Times bestseller. Her, her new book, Her Very Personal Journey um, as, as a Patient, the book is called uh, Healing When a Nurse uh, Becomes a Patient. And, um, and, and at the end here, I just wanted to share, I mean, in the epilogue, you said, um, as a nurse, I told myself that if the system failed patients, I could make up for it by working harder better and longer. Sometimes that was true, but then you you say you have to admit any one person giving 120% to the job, just to paraphrase, can't, can't balance out the problems in the system. It leads to fatigue. It leads to burnout from people having to do too much. So, you know, that's, that's something I, you know, we're, we're, we're inspired to try to help change, um, those circumstances, those systems, that culture, as you described so vividly in your books and as you did here today. Um, so I'll, I'll, I'll leave you with, with the final word, if there's anything else that you want to add on that or anything else you want to say to wrap up. Oh, thanks, Mark. Well, this has been really fun. And I think the strength of this and the, the work you do is the thoughtfulness that goes into it. and. I think most people in healthcare are good people. They want the best results. And I think that goes all up the chain of command. And we need more thoughtfulness about what people are going through and what the people who take care of them are also going through. Mm-hmm. Well, thank so you I'm, for sharing. I'm sorry. Oh, just I'm hoping for a reset after COVID. That's yeah. my wish. I hope we, I hope we get that, and I want to thank you, Teresa, for sharing um, you know all all of your stories and your experiences and your efforts to help open p- people's eyes and and do things to help drive improvement to the systems for um, for patients, for caregivers, for everybody involved. So thank you, thank you again for joining us today. You're welcome. My pleasure. Um, so again, we've been joined by Teresa Brown. Her website is Teresa Brown RN. Dot com. Please look in the show notes um, to look for links to her books and, and the website. Thanks again. You're welcome. Thanks for listening to Habitual Excellence presented by Value Capture. We hope you'll subscribe to the podcast and please also rate and review it in your favorite podcast directory or app. To learn more about Value Capture and how we can help your organization on this journey to habitual excellence, visit our website at www.valuecapturellc.com. Hi, we'd like to tell you about a new free ebook that Value Capture has published. It's available now. It's titled Leadership, Learning, and the Power of Perfect. Selected Insights from the Habitual Excellence Podcast. The book includes quotes from Paul O'Neill Sr., as well as guests from the first 25 episodes of this podcast series, Habitual Excellence. You can learn more and you can download the ebook today 
at www.valuecapturellc.com slash perfect one.